scripture reading will be from Matthew 26. If you find that, you can stand. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. And after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Let's pray. God, we again are just so grateful for all that you've recorded for us. We might learn ourselves, just be have our hearts just laid bare, but that we might especially learn of you and your goodness, your grace, your mercy, and that we would love you, God, as you have first loved us. And I pray that you would work in our hearts, God, as only you can, to strengthen us and to purify our, our faith, and that we would worship you in spirit and truth. Thank you, God, for this time, again, for the freedom that we have to be together in the gift of gathering in the name of Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, you may be noticing I, my, um, I'm talking with a bit of a smoker's voice today. One of the students has been a bad influence on me in Bible school, and... Um, I won't say who. How has it been for you, Chase, this year's Bible school? <laughs> It'll never end. Sorry, Chase. It just keeps going. I love you. You know it. Um, we're slowly making our way through chapter 26 here. A lot of verses, long chapter, but very, very significant um, portion of scripture, obviously, doesn't get any more significant than this. These two, three chapters here, 26, 27, 28. This section here that we're going to look at this morning um, is on what we just commemorated, um, the Lord's Supper. And it's very brief here in Matthew. He doesn't, doesn't spend much time on it. In fact, we wouldn't even get the idea that it's as huge a deal as it is just by judging by Matthew, by just the very few verses he spends on it. But this um, new covenant that Christ inaugurated at this Passover, it's hard to overstate just how important it is. Um, I mentioned the last time I preached, which was three weeks ago, that the Passover was not a festival looking backward so much as it was one looking forward. That was lost on a lot of the Jews because they were just thinking of their past history. That night in Egypt when they were all slaves and God had instructed them to paint their doorways around the sides above and down the sides with blood. And um, to go inside and to eat the lamb and to be dressed and ready to go. And if they obeyed the Lord, then the angel would pass over. That's where we get the name Passover. The angel would pass over their homes and their eldest son would be spared. If they didn't, by faith, do what the Lord said, then the oldest child, oldest son, would lose his life. And Israel obeyed. And so then for the rest of their days, they commemorated that event. But it was never meant to be only a memorial of something that had happened, but it was meant to look forward to the ultimate Passover, when God would send the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who would die for our sins, and 
that through our placing our faith in him, that we would pass from death to life and that we would no longer come into judgment because of him taking that judgment for us. And so it was very much an important feast for thinking ahead. And so in that sense, this is the last Passover, not the last one for Jesus per se, but the last one for everybody. No one needs to observe the Passover anymore because what Christ did through his death on our behalf was a fulfillment of everything the Passover was looking forward to. It's been done. And so Christ took this very old memorial, this feast, and he gives new meaning to it. Now he tells us it's no longer about him um, giving his life, the prospect of him giving his life for us, but now it's what we call the Lord's Supper, and it is a memorial of what he has done, as well as looking forward, just like the Jews did in the Old Testament, not to when he will die because he has died, but looking forward to when he will come again. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul said, quoting from Jesus, do this, as often as you do it, in remembrance of me until I come again. So we're looking forward to his coming again for us and establishing his kingdom. So there's a number of things that I want to look at with this because it's such a significant ordinance. And by the way, there are only two ordinances that Christ has established for the church. One is baptism and the other is the Lord's Supper. That's it. Um, there are not seven sacraments. There are only those two ordinances, which are sometimes also referred to as sacraments. And when they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. That was not part of the Passover. So Jesus is giving new meaning to the events that are taking place here. He's inaugurating new procedures, as it were, with new significance. This unleavened bread that he was passing around the table, now I'm telling you, this symbolizes me, my body being broken for you. And then he took a cup, and this was not one of the four cups of the Passover, as I understand. I'm no expert on the Passover, but that's the research that I've seen. This is not one of those four cups. This is a new cup. And he took a cup and gave thanks and said to them, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. Luke 22, verse 20, just calls it straight up. This is the new covenant, the new covenant. So that then raises a number of issues. What is a covenant to begin with? And what makes this covenant different? What, what makes it new? So what is a covenant? <coughs> Excuse me. Hope I won't be coughing too much. Um, a covenant has a, a number of aspects to it. There were, were six covenants mentioned in the Old Testament. The first one being the Noahic covenant. Well, that's the covenant where when Noah came out of the ark, um, in, there in Genesis, God said seven times in that chapter that he would no longer, there would never be a time again when he would flood the earth and kill all of humanity. And then the sign of that covenant is the rainbow. So every time you look at a rainbow, it is God saying the flood will never, ever happen again. So that's the first covenant mentioned in the Bible. Then the next covenant mentioned is the Abrahamic covenant. And in that covenant, God made several promises to Abraham. And you remember that when that covenant was inaugurated, Abraham um, was asleep. And he had first been told to take several different kinds of animals and to kill them and separate them by halves. And in this dream that he had, the vision that he had while he was asleep, so he's a passive participant, God is the one who is walking between those halves of the animals. And when a covenant was formed, typically there was the shedding of blood. In fact, in the New Testament, Hebrews will say that without the shedding of blood, that the covenant can't be formed. 
And that shedding of blood and the walking between the two halves of the animal that has been put to death is symbolic of saying that only death can bring the covenant to an end. The only way for the covenant to be made, the only way for it to be to end is through death. And so it is then the, from that Abrahamic covenant, God made several promises with Abraham. He promised him a land. He promised him a son. And he promised to make him a great blessing. And so each of those three promises become more covenants. And so the son becomes the Davidic covenant. And the, um, the land becomes the Palestinian covenant of Deuteronomy 28. And the blessing becomes the new covenant, which Jesus is now inaugurating through the shedding of his blood. So that's six covenants. Those are the only ones mentioned in the Bible. There is nothing in the Bible about a covenant of redemption, a covenant of works, or a covenant of grace. And if you know your covenant theology, you know I've just made a statement there. Um, none of those three covenants of covenant theology are mentioned in Scripture. The only ones that are mentioned are the six that I've just highlighted for you. That's it. A covenant is much more significant than a promise. Much more significant. A covenant can only be broken by death. And it is ratified only by blood. It is unconditional in nature in that the maker binds himself to fulfill it regardless of the actions of the other party. And it cannot be altered or amended in any way, according to Galatians 3.15. Now those are the five, five of those covenants were with Israel. Noahic covenant was with all mankind. But there is a seventh covenant that is mentioned in the Bible. Marriage. Malachi chapter 2, we're told that marriage is a covenant. It's much more than a promise. And like the other covenants of the Bible, it is unconditional in nature. And the maker binds himself to fulfill it regardless of the actions of the other party. It cannot be altered or amended in any way. So what makes this covenant new? New means... Another one already existed. It means the other is old. It means that eventually the old one would be replaced with the new one. And the old covenant was inadequate in some way. The old covenant, we're told in Hebrews 8.13, is now obsolete. Now if it feels like I'm reading these things, it's because I am. Sorry about that. But it's very important for me just to make sure I'm getting this clear and right. Um, if you'd like to read more in detail, this my book's falling apart here, but The New Nature by Reynolds Showers. Excellent book. It's not in print anymore. That's unfortunate. Um, I have permission from the widow for us to reprint them at his hill for our second year students. Um, but Reynolds was just a tremendous guy. I've, I've read all of his books, highly recommend them. Um, he doesn't use illustrations hardly ever. Um, it, it's just he just gives you the facts and nothing but the facts, like the old Dragnet TV show, if you remember that, if you're my age. Um, and it's just wonderful author. And so you can still buy used copies of this. Highly recommend it. You can't talk about the new nature without talking about the new covenant, as we're going to see. And so that's why he has so much about the new covenant in it. And this is really a great book by Reynolds Showers as well. There really is a difference, a comparison of covenant and dispensational theology. Very um, even-handed guy. He doesn't write with anger. He, you know, he's just a very fair, even-handed guy, um, gentle man. I had the chance to meet him a couple times and um, was just thankful for the spirit of the man as well as his, his careful study of important things. Both of them excellent books. I'm not getting a royalty. Um, so just some more thoughts here. So this would not have been a total surprise for the disciples that Jesus is talking about a new covenant. Because they knew their Bibles. They were fishermen, but they weren't stupid. They knew their Bibles. And they knew there's more than one place in the Old Testament where this new covenant is talked about. And so I want to just, just look at that a bit. So if you'll just, don't lose your place here in Matthew 26, but go back to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. 
In beginning in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Now that's a reference to the Mosaic covenant. And he says, um, even although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one, teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And their sin I will remember no more. Now there's more to the covenant than those two verses. But we see that the heart of this covenant is an internal work that God is going to do. That was not true of the Mosaic covenant as we'll see. Now I'll go over to Ezekiel 36. And this gives more detail on that internal heart work that happens with the new covenant. So Ezekiel 36, again, there's, it's more than the internal work as it pertains to Israel. But as it pertains to us, it is the internal aspects that we have to focus on. So Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. That's a picture of forgiveness. Okay, Forgiveness. You, and this same thing that Jeremiah mentioned, I will forgive you. Your sins will be forgiven. That's what Ezekiel is saying as well. If you've been cleansed of your sin, you've been forgiven. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. So number one thing that happens under the new covenant is that we are forgiven of our sins. Is that enough to save you? No. Salvation is more than forgiveness. Okay, the second thing that happens. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. So this is an internal work. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So two things now that are happening. First thing, forgiveness. Second thing, new heart. Third thing, new spirit. Okay, so let's break that down. A new heart and a new spirit. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's regeneration. That's being born again. Okay? So you're not going to have the same heart you had before. Paul picks up on this theme in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where he writes about the new covenant. And he says, we've been made, been made ministers of a new covenant. And he says, he says, the old covenant was written on stones. The new covenant has been written on hearts. And you have become living letters of that new covenant. And so God does an internal work where he replaces the hard heart with a new responsive heart to him. So that's regeneration. You are no longer what you were. You have become a new creature with a new heart. But those are great things. My sin has been forgiven and I have been born again. Well, that's enough. Not really. We need more. And so the third thing that happens is the new spirit within you. And the writers here, the translators, are, are correct to not capitalize spirit. It's a small s. And well, what does that mean, I get this new spirit? It's better to understand that as a new orientation or a new disposition is the heart of it. So we can say, that person has an angry spirit. And so we don't, we're not talking about the spirit in the sense of that part that communes with God, but we're talking about his basic disposition. When we are not Christians, our basic disposition is one of hostility and enmity toward God. We are oriented away from God. We are oriented towards sin. 
But when you are born again from above, God gives you a new creature who has been saved. He gives you a new orientation. And that orientation now, that new desire, that new disposition is to please God. So this is why it so disappoints us when we find ourselves that we have sinned. And we go, what's wrong with me? This is what Paul's describing in Romans chapter 7 where he says, The very good that I wish to do, I do not do it. Wretched man that I am. And so Paul was expressing this orientation, this desire to do what is good. That wasn't in him before he was saved. It's like saying of a tree, apple tree, pecan tree, and that's the correct way to pronounce pecan, you know, because we're, we're from Texas, we understand, is that, is that that tree has a disposition, orientation, or you could say a spirit. And we don't mean spirit again in that part, that invisible part that communes with God, like God is spirit. We're not using, that's not how Ezekiel is using the word. But that pecan tree has a disposition and orientation toward making only pecans. It'll never make figs. That is not its orientation. So there's something in it that moves it. And that something is a new spirit in us that moves us to wanting to please God. But is that enough? Is the wanting enough? Absolutely not. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, there is evil in me. The wanting, the wishing isn't enough. I want to do what's good, but I can't do what's good. I continue to do what I don't wish to do. Who will set me free from this body of death? And that's the fourth aspect of the new covenant. The indwelling Holy Spirit. So after he says, I will put a new spirit in you and, a new, and, and put a new heart in you, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's the new covenant. What more could God possibly do? You see? And this is where we go. When you placed your faith in Christ, you received forgiveness of sins. You became a new creature. You received a new orientation. And most important of all, because, and it couldn't have happened unless those other three things happened, but you have received the Holy Spirit. And it is the Spirit who is the agent for obedience. You cannot obey God apart from the Holy Spirit. This is what makes the Christian life truly supernatural. The only explanation is God's activity within us. This is the new covenant. And this is why Jesus is going to say in John 16, it is to your advantage that I go away because I cannot send the Holy Spirit as long as I remain. I must leave so that He can come. And that's when the new covenant is ultimately fulfilled. Not when Christ died for our sins. That's what inaugurated the new covenant. That's what made it possible. But it's when the Spirit of God was given to indwell us in Acts chapter 2. That was the culmination of everything the new covenant promised. So this is just mind-blowing what God has done for us. Everything depends on this. So the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law in contrast, you've got to remember, first of all, it was made, the Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, was made with the nation of Israel only. And most of Israel was not saved. It was entered into by birth and circumcision. The New Testament, the New Covenant, I'm sorry, same thing, New Covenant is another word for testament, and so the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. The New Testament is the New Covenant. The New Covenant is entered into not by physical birth, but by new birth. Under the Old Covenant, men were helpless to keep it on their own. The Old Covenant did not change the corrupt inner nature of the Israelites. The nature of the covenant was external. It was concerned with the heart and behavior, but operated from outside the person. The Old Covenant emphasized the need for an internal change, 
but it did not provide for it. That's the weakness of the law. It tells you what you're supposed to do, but it does not supply the strength, the ability to do what it tells you to do. Regeneration was possible in the Old Testament, but not by means of the Old Covenant. Just because you're a participant in the Old Covenant or you're born under the Old Covenant didn't make you saved. Old Covenant relationship with God did not guarantee regeneration. You could be under the Old Covenant and not be saved. Whereas in the New Covenant, you are saved if you're a participant in the New Covenant. So the Old Covenant was inadequate. It was holy, righteous, and good, as Paul says in Romans 7. But it resulted in death and had a ministry of condemnation and death. It was powerless to bring life. It could not make perfect those who drew near, Hebrews 10. It could not move, remove sins. It could not set us free from sin and death. It could not cleanse the conscience. It could not redeem, make perfect, or sanctify. Aren't you glad you were not under the law? Why would you want to be under the law? Let me just say again what it cannot do. It's powerless to bring life. It cannot make perfect those who draw near. It cannot remove sins. It cannot free us from sin and death. It cannot cleanse the conscience. It cannot redeem, make perfect, or sanctify. We needed a new covenant. And that's what Jesus is inaugurating. But you heard it. I read Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. It's with Israel. Right. Then how do we get to participate in it? And maybe it's not for us, but it is for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, when he talks about this new covenant, he says this is, not will be, is. And then he says we are, 2 Corinthians 3, are ministers of this covenant. And who is Paul ministering to? Jews and Gentiles, but principally Gentiles. And who is he writing to in 1 Corinthians as well as 2 Corinthians? The church, which is both Jews and Gentiles. So it's very clear in Paul's mind, as well as in Hebrews, goodness, Hebrews, I mean, it's like a long exposition on the new covenant, especially chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Hebrews. It's all about the new covenant. Very clear in these people's minds. The new covenant is for today and is for the church, not just for Israel. Well, how did we get to be part of this? Well, because Israel didn't recognize their day of visitation. And so the Lord Jesus has made another way. If you look at, at Ephesians chapter 2 very quickly, still on the subject of the new covenant, Paul speaks about how we as Christians, Gentile Christians, can participate in the blessings of what Christ has done, even though what he did was principally for Israel, but it was never meant to be exclusively for Israel. But Israel did not recognize the day of its visitation. The Lord inaugurated this covenant despite Israel. It's for Israel, but they are not yet participating in it because they have not yet recognized Jesus as their Messiah. You can't participate in the new covenant by physical birth. Only by faith in Jesus Christ, Israel has not yet placed its faith in Christ. The day will come when they will. But in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, verse 11... Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, by the Jews in other words, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants and of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And then he goes on, verse 19, for example, <clears throat> you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So God has taken down the barrier. That's one of the benefits of the new covenant. And this is the thing that, that, that the, the author of Hebrews so stresses is that when Christ died, the barrier between us and God has been removed. And we have complete, unhindered access to God. Our sin has been removed. The sin barrier has been taken away. But even the barrier between Jew and Gentile has been removed. 
And now we are able to enter into the blessings. And what greater blessing is there than access to God? You see, that's the greatest, greatest blessing there will ever be is that we have free, un- uh, unhindered, open access to God. We can go straight into the Holy of Holies at any time. There's no barriers anymore. There's no outer court for the Gentiles, inner court for the Jews, holy place only for the priest, holy of holies only for the high priest. It's all been done away with. Because of the new covenant, we have immediate access to God. What the Lord has accomplished for us through his death is beyond comprehension. In Romans chapter 11, Paul will write and say that that we have been, we who were not part of the original tree were grafted in. And he's not talking about a tree of salvation. He's talking about a tree of blessing. We are able to participate in that, in that blessing place that formerly we would not have been able to be active participants in. Formerly, our blessing came only through how Israel was blessed and whether or not we as Gentiles were blessing Israel. Now the blessing comes directly because we are made participants. We are part of the commonwealth and we are no longer separated. The new covenant blessings mean forgiveness, regeneration, a new nature, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit's enabling for obedience to God. And all of this is permanent. We can rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So going back to the text here in Matthew 26. Again, verse 27 He took a cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes that word many throws people into a loop, and they think, well, if he'd meant all, he could have said all. It just, it's a frustration to me. Um, if he'd meant few, he could have said few as well, right? But I can tell you this, this is a lousy place to go to for your doctrine of limited atonement, that he didn't say all. Because I can tell you, many is a lot more than a few. And limited atonement says he died for a few. It doesn't say he died for many. He died for the minority, not the majority. But the problem is, is that many can mean all. Most can't mean all, right? If I say most people, I'm excluding all people. But if I say many people, I'm not excluding all people. If you want to get this, go over to Romans chapter 5 with me. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death spread And death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Amen. We all agree. Okay? Now, look at verse 15. But the gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, there's no contradiction. He's just using a different word to say the same thing. Verse 12, how many died? All men. Verse 15, the many died. So there you have it, many can mean all. Okay, most cannot mean all. But many can mean all because all is many, right? All is a lot of folks. It's all folks. And you can follow that right through, um, right through this whole paragraph. You see him going back and forth between many and all, many and all. One is a synonym for the other. And if that's still doesn't convince you. I'm not sure anything will. But there's 1 John chapter 2 where he says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. 
and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And I know whole means all. The whole world. And so when Jesus again says in Matthew 26 that this is for, that, that this shed, my blood shed on behalf of many for forgiveness of sins, he died for all. That all would be forgiven. Then why don't all go to heaven? Well, look at Romans 5 again, and it says, because it is a gift that must be received. But everything's been done. When Jesus said on the cross coming up, it is finished, he meant it. It is finished. You can walk up to any person on the street and say, your sins have been paid for. Everything that needs to happen has happened, but it's a gift. And all God's asking is to receive it. Some would say, well, then you're saying that you have to work for your salvation. Really? How is receiving a gift? Can you possibly take credit for that? It's great having babies, infants. We're past those years, but we're, the kids are having them, and it's wonderful. Nine now. <laughs> Only one girl. Go figure. It's wonderful. But I'm telling you, you look at these little babies, and they have one capacity, receive. They can't act. They can't do. But they can receive if they want to. And if that little newborn baby doesn't want to receive, it's not going to receive. You can't make it receive. And it's amazing a newborn babe can refuse to receive. Or it can eagerly receive. And as that baby balloons up, and all you see are rolls of fat, and you don't go, great job receiving, baby. You go, great job feeding, mom. Mom's doing a good job feeding her baby. And all those roly-polies, it goes to credit of mom. Even though the baby would not have anything if it didn't receive. All we must do, Scripture says, is receive. And that is an act of faith. And faith is not works. Christ has done it all. The new covenant is there for us to, to come into simply by faith. And if you, if you just receive what Jesus has done, thank you, Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You are born again. You get an entirely new disposition that you never had before. And the Spirit of God comes to live in you to enable you to fulfill what that new disposition wants to be done. It's an amazing life. Let's go a little further. I tell you that I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Shortly coming up when Jesus is hanging from the cross, they're going to offer him some wine mixed with gall, I think it says. And he in fact tastes it. We'll get into the details of that. Some people go, well, there he, he's violating his own word. He drank the wine. Oh, come on. Really? I mean, he's not drinking it. He's, it, it at the most, maybe he took a swallow, but even that, he's really wetting his lips so that we could hear him say, because he had lost so much blood and he's so totally dehydrated, we would not have been able to hear him clearly say, it is finished into thy hands I commit my spirit if there hadn't been some moisture put on his lips. But he was not drinking in joy, which is what the wine is a picture of. And after singing a hymn, they went out from the Mount of Olives. This would have been traditional after the Passover. There was one of three different hymns, or all three of them they would sing. And it's hard to imagine that Jesus was so composed during this time that he would sing as they left, but they did. Then Jesus gave them this hugely disturbing news. You will all fall away because of me this night. 
that it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. This very night, all of you will flee. You will all fall away. Jesus knows what is in the heart of man. He says, because of me, persecutions come. And even under the new covenant, Christians under persecution and even without persecution fall away from the Lord. Being under the new covenant, a participant in the new covenant is no guarantee that you will not fall away. We should be clear that that falling away that Jesus is talking about is directly because of Jesus and their association with him. The persecution was because of Jesus and their association with him. But he says, I will be raised up. They missed that part. Verse 32, I will be raised up. I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, even though all should fall away from you, I will never fall away. Yeah, right. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a cock crows, you, will, you shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die for you with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples were saying the same thing too. These men needed to hear this so that they would see their, their strength is not enough. Their loyalty, their devotion, their love is not enough. Jesus knew what they would do and what they were capable of. He knows what is in us better than we do ourselves. He still loves us and he still gives himself to us. It's a reality that for many Christians, they do not understand what is in them until after they become a Christian. And the biggest sins they will ever commit will be after they are saved. And some are so discouraged, understandably, that they wonder, did Jesus pay for that? I have messed up so bad. Is it forgiven? And the answer is yes. He paid for it all. And all means all. It is good that we know the weakness of our good intentions, of our emotions, of our loyalty, of our love, our determination. Whatever you want to say, every virtue that you can think of is inadequate in our own strength. If you want to start from kindness at the one end to courage at the other end and everything in between, I don't care how much of it you think you have. You may think you're the bravest person on the earth and you can face anything like Peter thought he could. You can't. You can't. This knowledge of what we are capable of should humble us, drive us to Jesus in dependence, Cause us to see this, the vastness, the superiority of his love and faithfulness for us and to worship him all the better. That knowing what is in us and what we are capable of, he still gave himself for us. And it doesn't surprise him. We may be shocked at our own sin. He is not in the least bit surprised. And knowing us, he gave himself for us. What difference does a new covenant make? Keep in mind, these men were not under the new covenant yet. So they could only live by their own best intentions, by their own willpower. That is not us. In fact, and this is where I want to close. If you go over to Hebrews chapter 10 with me. Verse 
As I said earlier, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 is all about the new covenant. And as he's drawing this truth of the new covenant to application, he says in Hebrews 10, 19, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. See, the new covenant, I can come straight into the holy place. Since we have this confidence because of the new covenant, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our faith. Verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. It's been jokingly called the lettuce, pack, pack, the lettuce passage. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider. And now verse 26, if we, those who are under the new covenant, go on sinning willfully. I don't think that should be translated with the sense if we continue in sin. It's not the idea. If we sin willfully, in light of what Jesus has done, see, we don't have to sin. This is where he's going with this. This is what John's going to say in 1 John. The one who abides in Christ cannot sin, John says in 1 John. Because the life of Christ is not a life of sin. And he has done everything necessary. I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. The Holy Spirit indwells me. And this I know if I sin, it is not because Jesus' life in me is inadequate. It's because I am not trusting him to do that which only he can do. And I will always have to shoulder the responsibility for sin. Under the old covenant, it gave them no power not to sin. Under the new covenant, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit living in us to cause us to obey. So guess what, folks? The author of Hebrews is saying, we have a greater responsibility here because we have the total resources of God at our, at our, at our disposal to not sin. And when we do, expect the discipline of God. Particularly the one sin that he seems to be focusing on, and that is abandoning the confession of our hope. When a Christian turns away from Jesus and denies Christ, as those men did, those 11 men, it's a different ballgame. When we openly deny Christ, expect discipline. Because we have no excuse. No excuse. Because the living God lives in you and me. And he has forgiven us. He's caused us to be born again. He's given us a new nature and he's given him himself so that we would obey him. How much severe punishment, verse 29. More severe than the Old Testament, like those disciples living before the time of the cross. How much severe punishment do you think we, he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. That's what we do if we deny Jesus. When we sin willfully, we are insulting the Spirit of grace and we are trampling underfoot the Son of God. What does that punishment look like? It's not losing your salvation. Remember, the new covenant is permanent. And it is unconditional. And it depends totally on God for its fulfillment. But it does mean that as one who has been purchased by the blood of Christ and who has all the resources of God available to him, that I can expect that if I should openly deny Jesus that God is prepared to take me home. 
We read the Old Testament and see the ground opening up and other things happening, fireballs falling from heaven, God punishing those who, who reject Him. And I think that's what He's saying here. When a child of God, under the new covenant, openly turns away from God and rejects Him. Terrifying thing. Because He has all the resources of God at His disposal. This is why Paul's going to say in Hebrews chapter 11, he says, we've got a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. People who have gone before us under the old covenant, who lived lives of faith, and they suffered greatly. And if these people in the Old Testament could live lives of faith, and we have Christ in us, we've got a great cloud of witnesses around us, folks, that say no matter how bad it gets, You've never been adequate. You've never been sufficient. But Jesus is. May we humbly turn to him and not make excuses for our sin. In the, in the new covenant, if I'm understanding it correctly, there is no excuse for any of us when we sin. I'll close this in prayer. It is a good thing, God, to be able to say we have no excuse for willful sin. That's a good thing. Because it means that you are fully at our disposal, O oh Lord, to live this life and to live it blamelessly in righteousness and in holiness. And all that you would ask us to do is to hand ourselves over to you that we might never experience the terrible possibilities that lie within our hearts. Jesus, you are the Savior. And you have come, given yourself for us, purchased us by your blood, risen from the dead, that we might be delivered from our own wicked ways and might walk uprightly in righteousness for your namesake and your glory. Thank you, God, that all we must do is receive as a helpless infant, infant just receives. The work is yours. Thank you that it is not by self-will, but it is by your power working in us of your good pleasure that we live this life. In Jesus' name, amen.